and it was just the time the insurgency was building up, particularly in in, uh, in Basra. Um, a lot of activity, a lot of operational activity. Welcome to Conflict Chronicles, the show where battlefield stories are told. Share in the physical and mental experiences from those who have been on the front line of conflict. I am your host, Neil. This show may contain adult language and strong themes from conflict zones. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back. Today we are joined by a former British Army Colonel, Peter Davis, CBE, Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, an award bestowed upon Peter by Her Majesty the Queen. Peter joined the army in 1981 and attended the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst in England. He was commissioned into the light infantry, now amalgamated into the rifles. He retired from the army in 2008 at the rank of colonel, but had also filled two brigadier one-star level appointments. He has served in the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, Germany, Australia, where he now lives, Cyprus, the United States, Middle East and Africa. He has commanded the 2nd Battalion the Light Infantry, leading over 600 men and women on operations in the United Kingdom, Cyprus, Africa, Sierra Leone and the Middle East in Iraq. Since leaving the Army, Peter has been a consultant in Australia, mainly to the defence-related industry sector, lately switching to the energy sector, where he now provides advice to a global engineering services company. Peter has also lectured at the Australian Defence College, the Centre for Defence Leadership and Ethics, offering valuable lessons of his applied leadership and ethics from a long and distinguished career with a focus on the three years he spent on counterinsurgency operations in Northern Ireland. He is co-founder, past chairman of Mates for Mates, a charity supporting recovery of wounded, injured service personnel and their families. Today, Peter is telling his story about the challenges of leadership and command of an infantry battalion that is dispersed around the world. Hello, Peter, and thank you for joining us. Peter, what is a commanding officer? It's a very interesting question, and it a, covers a multitude of, uh, of tasks, of responsibilities. Um, but first of all, it's a great privilege, and it's a privilege to be able to lead, um, as you say, 600 men and women on operations in peacetime, uh, looking after their welfare, looking after their interests, looking after their futures, um, as well as in an infantry battalion in the British Army, uh, where you have over 300 years of history um, bestowed in that uh, in that name or in that in that battalion, you have a certain responsibility to that history, to the um, to the culture, to the background, and to the people who form part of the wider family regiment. So the commanding officer is responsible ultimately for leading that organisation uh, into war, into combat, onto operations, onto other tasks, whether they be non-operational, non-warlike. Uh, in other words, peacekeeping operations, in other words, humanitarian operations, and so on. So he is responsible for the delivery of the capability which comes from that collection of people, 600 people. So how long in your military career had you been when you found out you're going to be a commanding officer? 
I'd been in the army for 20 years by that stage, um, having joined as an 18-year-old and done a very short commission before going to university. Um, and as I say, it was 20 years later where I'd had experience of different operations, different places in the world, different tasks, um, and I was selected to uh, to command the battalion, which was, as I say, a great uh, a great privilege and what you aspire to as an infantry officer. So how did you, you, you found out? Did someone email you? Did they tell you, write you a letter? How did you find out and how did you feel about that? First of all, it's, I found out... Personally, I, at the time, I was a, a company commander. So a company is one of the building blocks of, a, of an infantry battalion. So there are five companies in an infantry battalion. And I was commanding one of those um, one of those companies in a different battalion. And the commanding officer um, called me aside and said, um, you've been selected to, uh, to command the second battalion, the light infantry, um, in 18 months' time. I think it was on the sort of the time scale. So that was the first knowledge that I had of it. And then in the um, in the great system that is the British Army, it then appeared on a list which was published publicly. Uh, so everybody uh, found out about it. And I think I received a, a formal letter to say, you have been selected. So that's how we uh, that's how we found out. So how did you feel about that when you got that? How, what was the what was the inside? Was it punching the air or you knew you were on for better things? Uh, it wasn't so much being on for better things as I said as I said a minute ago it's it's what you aspire to being a commissioned officer in an infantry regiment you you aspire to command one of the battalions we had um, at that time we had two battalions in the um, in the regiment um, and you're always looking at what your competition is and that's that's how it uh, that's how it um, how it, it turns out who are you competing with to command those um, those battalions and it's a it's a it's a hierarchy um, and it's a it's a competitive environment so um, how did I feel I felt elated uh, because as I say for 18 19 years um, I had been aspiring to to that uh, to that role recognizing when it might come in my career and what's at what stage the time was then right and it was the time so yes it was punching the air it was a, it was elation but it was um ameliorated countered by the fact that that responsibility responsibility for the people um the 600 people i knew at that stage where the battalion was going to be where it was going to be moving to um, I didn't at that stage know what operational deployments there, there would be because it was some distance in the future. Um, but I knew that I would be commanding when the battalion moved from uh, Bulford on Salisbury Plain in uh, Wiltshire in the south of England um, overseas to Cyprus um, and the Eastern Sovereign Base Area Battalion in, uh, in Decalia. And the responsibility there grows somewhat because... With you, with the battalion, with the 600 men and women that you're commanding, come the families as well. And in the quaint, um, shall we say, uh, playback into, into history, you as the commanding officer have a certain degree of responsibility for the families, for the welfare, for the discipline. You act as a magistrate, for example, for, uh, for the families in, um, in, some, uh, in some cases, in some environment, because of the role that you have as the commanding officer. So to go back to your very first question, when you're overseas on a, an overseas posting like Cyprus, your responsibility as the commanding officer grows more broad because you have that magistrate disciplinary responsibility for the families who are there as well. 
So day one, you, you turn up in day one and you have your own ideas, your own concepts. What do you do day one? Is there a commanding officer book of here's what to do? How do you deal with that level of challenge? I'll answer that in a slightly slightly longer way. I uh, was due to take over command in uh, July 2001 and about uh, nine months beforehand, so um, at three months notice, I was told by the chain of command that my predecessor, the, the, uh, the person who I was taking over from, had actually resigned and he was leaving the army six months before he was due to uh, finish his command. So therefore my command came forward uh, my assumption of command came forward by six months, which again, to go back to the point about elation of, of taking of taking command, that was that was tremendous from impact on the family. It wasn't so great. We'd literally just arrived at my other posting, my, my posting, which was going to precede the uh, command uh, in Germany. So we had to up sticks again um, after six months and move back to the uh, back to the United Kingdom. So I arrived. Um, I was actually unqualified in the great um, military terms of, uh, of things because I hadn't done what was then called the commanding officer designate course. Commanding officer designate course is a three-week course, um, and it was run at the Land Warfare Centre in Warminster. Um, and I was due to attend about two or three months before I took command, and therefore I would have been prepared in the Army's eyes. Uh, as it was, I went about a month after I took command. So I wasn't qualified um, in, um, in, in military terms. But having served in an infantry battalion over the last 19, uh, 19 or so years, 20, 20 years, you see other people, other commanding officers who you respect, who have gone through exactly the same process as you. You see the way they command and you see you learn from them. And you're always, always learning, always identifying what the challenges are, how people face challenges, how they react to challenges, uh, how they lead people, how they work with people, how they, um, how they develop people, how they uh, sit, look after their welfare and so on and so forth. So I felt that I was ready to command although I hadn't got that tick in the box of the, um, of the qualifying course. So that, that was how I arrived in January 2001 uh, to assume command. So you take control, command of this enormous body of people, uh, and there'll be many people listening who uh, are dealing with a team of 30 people, 40 people. How on earth do you deal with that amount of people? Well, you're taking over a very well-oiled um, and functioning machine. Um, and it's a machine which is built on people, but it's built on an organization. It's built on a hierarchy. And therefore, I had, uh, as I said, the building blocks of the companies. Um, I had a very strong set of um, commanders of those companies, um, lots and lots of experience, um, people who had been in um, much, much longer than I have in some, in some cases. And you have some wise heads who you can refer to when you're seeking advice, when you're seeking information, when you're seeking knowledge about the battalion. Because the battalion that I took command of was not the same organization, the same people as it was when I had left that particular battalion about 
five years, six years ago. So there are changes all the time within any organization, particularly an, an infantry battalion, but there are the continuity as well. So you're relying to a certain extent on, on those wise heads to provide counsel, um, to advise you of the, um, the best way to, to, to go for, the, for that moment. But also you've been selected because your experience, you've been selected because of your ability and you have that confidence. And therefore you have some ideas that you want to implement in the battalion, in that battalion, in your, in the battalion that you're commanding, and therefore uh, you can start to put those into um, into um, into process, as it were. But it was also looking at the, um, uh, the, the the forecast of events, as it's called, so the diary, the schedule of, of what's happening. I knew that I had a year to command in the UK. I then had uh, I would then command the battalion as it moved from the United Kingdom to Cyprus, as I mentioned. But I also knew that there was a possibility that we would be going to Sierra Leone uh, on an operational tour later in the year. I also knew that one of the companies, one of the, the um, uh, one of the companies, was going to Gibraltar uh, in about uh, a month's time, um, February uh, two thousand and one, to relieve the Gibraltar regiment so that they could come back to the United Kingdom to train. And again, therefore, you had a company from the battalion that you were commanding deployed elsewhere the other side of Europe, um, to uh, carry out tasks, to carry out duties, uh, and you were responsible for them while they were there. So um, there's, there's plenty to get your mind working as to how you're going to command, how you're going to lead, uh, and how you're going to build the team that you want to lead. So you were talking about that forward diary of events. So you were moving to Cyprus. That's a an island in the Mediterranean that's got uh, a, some level of British ownership, um, shall we say. And then you were talking about Sierra Leone. Just just touch on Sierra Leone. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what Where is that? What happened there? So Sierra Leone, a um, small country in the west coast, of, uh, west coast of Africa, former British colony. Um, and it was at that stage a, a country that had been through a, a fairly brutal civil war. Um, and it was at that stage re- recovering from that war. The, um, uh, the, the British Army, uh, the British Armed Forces had deployed a number of people, whether they be on training teams, whether they've been on stabilization missions, whether it be a show of force to uh, to remind the, um, the 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 rebels that there was still a um, an interest, a British interest in the um, in the colony. Sierra Leone is a fascinating is a fascinating country. Um, it was uh, the only deep water port on the west coast of uh, west coast of Africa, so um, that was why there was the, um, the the British interest in it in um, in, in years gone by as it were and uh, and there was a very strong British influence um, in the um, in the country whether it be the the democratic system the judicial system and interestingly um, a Commonwealth war grave uh, cemetery um, at uh, the King Tom cemetery on the um, on the harbour side at um, uh, in Freetown so um, Freetown because again sadly it had a very strong history with the uh, with the slave trade um, and it was one of those ports through which um, slaves were taken to uh, to the new world. So um, it has a dark, but it also has a very lively uh, background. And it's a fascinating country. And so what did you have to do with your battalion there? What was the role that you were asked to undertake? So we 
were tasked with being what was called the short-term training team. So as a, as, a, as a battalion, we were responsible for training two battalions of the Sierra Leone Army. And uh, we were responsible for training them right from basic training. So in other words, how to march, how to fire a rifle, how to work as a team and, and so on, right up to uh, working as a battalion on operations. And um, we were due to be out there for a, a three-month tour. And it was um, about halfway through, it became obvious that uh, we would probably be staying on for, a, for another tour um, for about another uh, six weeks after that to complete another short-term training team um, of a th another infantry battalion. Um, there were challenges. Um, we environmentally, we were there during the rainy season, so it was particularly uh, particularly wet, difficult to to move, um, and difficult to to train whilst uh, whilst uh, facing the you know the, the tropical downpour of um, African uh, African rainy season. We were also responsible, uh, as well as that, for providing protection for the British interests in um, in Freetown and in Sierra Leone um, overall. Particularly in Freetown, there was a, a brigade headquarters. Um, that was the, uh, the the level above a battalion. So there was a, a headquarters there, which was providing support and uh, advice to the uh, Sierra Leone Army complete. So there was a headquarters in um, in Freetown. There was also the um, the British High Commission was there, and we were Responsible for securing and um, protecting those those um, uh, those installations. There are also a number of um, peacekeeping teams, uh, Commonwealth peacekeeping teams, which were working in the country. So Freetown is on the coast. Um, major towns, you know, up to 100, 200 miles inland. And that each of those um, each of those towns, there was a team that was providing support for the. Um, the police and also for the army, the Sierra Leone army that was working in that area. So we were providing protection for the British and other Commonwealth personnel who were there. We were also working with the United Nations who had um, African Union, OAU organization of African Union country, um, uh, countries who were providing armed forces in the country. And we were responsible for working with the, um, uh, with the, the United Nations as well. So it was a, uh, it was a fascinating role. Um, interesting, great in some ways to see the benefits that such a presence could bring to the Sierra Leone army, to the security, to allow the country to get back um, off its knees as it were, but also um, fairly humbling at times to see the conditions that the locals were living in immediately coming out of a, uh, um, a civil war, but also to see the impact of man's inhumanity on man, to see some of the mutilation that had, um, that had taken place and some of the, um, uh, some of the, 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 the people who were in homes, who were in camps, and they were camps for the um, for the people who had sadly, you know, arms chopped off with machetes and they'd been other brutally um, uh, attacked with machetes and to see the way they lived at the at the time. And that, from a, from a commanding officer perspective, I talked about the responsibilities for the, for the welfare, the interests, and particularly when you have a, a number of young soldiers, 18-year-olds, who had literally just joined the army, just joined the battalion, and they were thrust straight into, into Sierra Leone. Yes, there wasn't a great deal of, of combat, but the assault on their senses, whether it be the smell, the sight or whatever, when they arrived at Lungi and, and got off the plane to see something which was completely alien to them, 
and then to see the result of man's inhumanity to man, to see the impact of some of these um, gruesome attacks on on people. How, how do you lead in that type of environment? So there's salt on the senses there. How do you motivate somebody to say, no, I, I want you to do this job? How do you take people on that journey? I'd been commanding then for seven months, eight months. And in that time, you're able to impose your will, your your character, um, your culture, the way you want to lead, the way you want to um, um, uh, to influence people within the battalion and the battalion to influence um, other people. You then discover or you then find out that you are going to Sierra Leone and you learn a lot about it. You learn a lot about the role before you go. You go on a, um, a reconnaissance first. Uh, we were taking over in Sierra Leone from uh, the 1st Battalion of Light Infantry. So I knew a lot of friends out there, particularly the commanding officer. Um, and you talk to them. You learn about the environment. You learn about the task. You learn about um, uh, what works and what doesn't work. That then forms your or helps to form the way you command and you lead, making sure that everybody is absolutely clear on the intent. In other words, how you're going to do it, what is required. In other words, what measures success? How do we measure success in what we're um, in what we're, we're going to be doing here? Um, and then you're imposing your your will, your way of um, your way of doing things. And of course, once you come into the, uh, into theatre, you come into Sierra Leone in this case. Um, things change. You find out things that um, maybe you didn't know before you came. You are always learning. You are always um, change and being willing to change. Uh, and so it's, it's constantly involving how you, um, how you do it. But above all, it's your personality and the way you react to, pe to people, the way you treat people, and the expectations you communicate to people um, within, the, uh, within the battalion. So we, we talked a lot there about your soldiers. We talked about the army. Now, I would presume that the 600 people that you're referring to weren't single. They had lives. They had family. Uh, some of them married, girlfriends, boyfriends. What, what happens to them? How do you help and how do you deal with all of the challenges of families? You have a, um, a again a, a very good system. Um, I had a um, a unit welfare officer, a unit families officer, as it was, um, as it was called. And uh, because I was coming from a family regiment, and what I mean by a family regiment is that uh, we had two battalions of the light infantry then, and so there were people within the battalion who I knew um, from without throughout that uh, that twenty year time I'd had being commissioned into the light infantry and working within the battalion. So for example, when I, um, uh, when I went to, to, to Cyprus, when the battalion, uh, moved to, to Decalia, the family's officer had been the first platoon sergeant, um, that I had in the battalion 18 years beforehand or 19 years beforehand. Uh, so we knew each other extremely well. And when I say platoon sergeant, as a young officer, you arrive as an 18, 19 year old, um, and you have a, very senior, wise sergeant, senior non-commissioned officer, who's probably got um, 15 years experience. And he is the second in command of, of that platoon to you as a young 18-year-old, 19-year-old. So um, second in command quite often doesn't work quite that way, but um, he's the one who's guiding you, advising you, keeping you out of trouble, um, and also making sure that, uh, that, that that platoon is functioning effectively. And to come back 20 years later, to have that person, that confidant, 
serving as your unit welfare officer, the family's officer, is uh, an extraordinary privilege. And so he was responsible for the welfare of the families, particularly back in Bulford. Uh, and the advantage of being in Bulford, of course, um, in the United Kingdom is that people were relatively close to their, f- their own family, their own family um, support system. So if they wanted to, they could, they could go away for weekends or they could go back to, to live with, uh, with their, their, broader, their broader family. What toll was this taking on you? Because we're talking about several different countries here. We're talking about families. So it's not just 600 men and women. There's all of the other things that are going on. How did you cope? There's a lot of juggling. Um, there's a lot of, uh, they talk about the loneliness of, uh, the loneliness of command. And sometimes you do feel, um, quite lonely because you are having to make decisions, which you know are going to have an impact, not only on the, um, the men and women who, uh, you're commanding in that battalion, but as you quite rightly say on their, on their families. So again, Sierra Leone, uh, we were there three months and into the tour and I had to tell the battalion, um, that we were staying there for an extra six weeks or at least 300 or so of us were staying there for an extra six weeks. So that was an extra six weeks of separation, particularly as a time, uh, you know, it's, it was summertime in, in the, the United Kingdom. Um, it was coming up to, uh, to the beginning of the school term. So families were going through uh, enormous changes and um, progress, as it were, of, of, of their own. So how I felt about it, I had a job to do. Uh, I got on and did it. I, I had my own family and, and uh, you know, considerations back in the United Kingdom as well. Um, so I was going through exactly, exactly those. So I could understand what the pressures were on those in the battalion from outside the working environment, which happened to be in Sierra Leone at the time. So you learn from that. And you learn from uh, from others. Again, I talk about those those wise heads who who are there to to advise you to um, uh, you know to 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 give their thoughts. It's not a you know it's it's not just um, this is my way and this is the way we're going to do it. You're talking to people all the time, and particularly your regimental sergeant major, who is the the senior soldier in the um, in the battalion. Who at that stage. Um, the regimental sergeant major and I had known each other for about 15 years, 16 years. We knew each other extremely well. And there were many times where we'd sit and talk about these other issues, other pressures, other potential solutions, other ways forward. Um, but ultimately, the decision is the commanding officer's. The decision was mine. Um, and so therefore, you have to carry that responsibility. You have to live with you have to live with the, the outcomes of um, uh, of your of your decisions, of your of your direction. Um, but that's part of the challenge. And that's part of the satisfaction when you get it right. You talked earlier about magistrates. So that's a law enforcement almost a, a, a role there. So, you know, you would judge jury. Uh, as well as being a leader. So talk me through some of that. What do you mean by that? And what impact does that have on your leadership? Well, it's a key element of the leadership because your your leadership is not just about um, how you deliver capability, military capability or uh, whatever it is. There is so much else that um, that goes that goes into that. And under the um, the the statutory 
or the Act, the Army Act 1955, as it was as it was in those days, um, you as a as a commanding officer, you have a responsibility. You have a statutory responsibility and you have statutory um, powers which enable you to exercise justice. Exactly as you say, rather akin to a magistrate in the um, in, in civilian society, and so with that comes the ability to hear cases. Um, and when we talk about cases, we're talking about minor criminal um, uh, cases. We're talking about disciplinary cases. And the distinction that I would make there is that disciplinary cases um, in the army are those that are against good order and military discipline, as they say, as opposed to breaking a criminal. Um, uh, criminal law. So, for example, it might be somebody was due to parade, uh, but he decides to go absent without leave, or she decides to go absent without leave, and they go away for two days, three days, five days, and then they come back, or then they're arrested and they and they come back. Um, that is a um, counter to good order and military discipline, and they need to be dealt with. But it's not something that could or should go to a criminal court. And so, therefore, um, I had the the power to um, take away people's liberty, um, as exactly the same as every every commanding officer. I had the the the, the power to take money off them. In other words, it's fines and, and so on and so forth. But it's something that again you use sparingly. It's how do I use these powers to the effect my leadership and to effect good order and military discipline enhance capability enhance morale and so on in the in the battalion so it's a um it was a uh, a, a privileged position um it was a unique position in many ways and it's something that is jealously guarded by by the army and the armed forces uh, to ensure that we retain that because a commanding officer needs to have that ability to exercise authority in order to deliver the capability that he's required to deliver and maintain good order and military discipline. So we're building up a really complex picture here. So you've got the United Kingdom, you've got families, you've got Africa, Sierra Leone, you've got Cyprus, you've got Gibraltar, you've got discipline. What else did they throw in the mix for you as well? Well, it's interesting. The uh, we When we moved to, uh, to Cyprus, um, the tour was going to be for two years. And during that two years, I knew that we would be detaching a, a company of about 130, 140 people uh, to go to the Falkland Islands. So from the Eastern Mediterranean to the Falkland Islands um, as the Falkland Islands Reinforcement Infantry Company, the FIRIC. Uh, and it was a huge opportunity. It was an opportunity for the company commander to um, have some independence from, from the commanding officer, from, from me. Uh, to train his company in a completely different environment um, on some um, fascinating terrain, um, some terrain with sort of great history. So there was the the military history and how the Falklands War had um, had, had evolved. So the Falkland Islands. This is the one down by South America. Is this this one? is way down the southern end of, of South America, um, and uh, was the the place of the Falklands War, 1982, when um, Argentina in, invaded, and a task force was sent south by Margaret Thatcher to um, to retake the islands, which they did successfully. So. Thereafter, there was always a um, uh, an enhanced military presence in the Falklands, um, based around um, an, an airfield at Mount Pleasant. But there was a in those days an infantry company which was there to provide the security um, and to provide the deterrence. And the 
the, the battalion that I was commanding, we sent two companies, uh, two companies down there. So again, um, going back to the point about families, of those 130 or so, there would have been maybe 20, 25 who were married. So their families were in Cyprus at their, at, at their homes with the rest of the battalion. But the support network, the family support network, as in that that, that personal family, um, was, of course, back in the United Kingdom. So it was, um, again, huge pressures. The advantages of the of the from the military perspective of the training and the experience that these um, soldiers in the company were getting, um, but the pressures on the family um, being dislocated from their support network in the United Kingdom, um, but in the Eastern Mediterranean, on a very you know attractive island with a, a, a great climate and so on, but with its own pressures. So. We're now getting this real sense of picture, which is global. Um, you're all over the place. When do you get time off? When do you get time to think? When do you get time to really refresh your leadership, or was it just go all the time? Uh, it was. It was a lot of go, um, but uh, like everybody, you know, you're entitled to a um, a given amount of of leave a year, and there were times where we got away from uh, the island of Cyprus. Um, you know, we were able to travel in uh, in Egypt. Uh, I had a young family at the at the time. We had we travelled to Egypt, so an amazing experience for them. But to answer your question, that got me out of the bubble, that sort of loneliness of, of, of command or that the, the focus, the goldfish bowl of, of command and, you know, the, the considerations. I won't say pressures, but the considerations that you have all the um, all the time. So you break clean like that to give yourself a, a, a refresh or, or however you want to put it. And if you're in the United Kingdom, it's slightly easier because you get away. You know, we had family and we went to see, uh, went to see family and, and so on and so forth. So you get away, you recharge your batteries and you come back. But somebody uh, once described a, um, um, a commander who I worked for once described your leave period as a time to get away. And the first third of it is the time to really wind down, take some relaxation. You're then ready for the middle third. And then the final third is when you're building up the hunger, the um, the eagerness to get back to the job that you know is there, that you enjoy, um, and you find challenging. So uh, there is always there is always that, that that opportunity to to recharge like that. So my understanding of the military system, you, your role of commanding officer would come to an end at some point. How did that occur, and and how did that feel? Well, maybe I want to explain a little bit about about how it, um, how it came about. So. The battalion was in Cyprus, um, and I was due to hand over command in about um, August 2003. And um, those who know the history in around about August 2003, a little bit further east, was um, um, uh, Operation Telic, which was the invasion and then um, the the presence in, a, in Iraq. So the battalion was due to go to uh, to Jordan on an exercise as a, as a battalion, which was going to be the high point, the culmination of, of my time in command, because it was, having done the exercise before, it was a tremendous opportunity to get the battalion together, to train in the war fighting, to train in what um, in what we're there to do. Um, and unfortunately, that changed. And we were put on a very short notice to uh, move. 
back to or to go to to Iraq as the over the horizon reserve, as they as they grandly called it. Um, and at two weeks' notice, um, the battalion a, a company went, and then the remainder of the battalion followed up, and we uh, deployed from. Um, uh, Cyprus from Decalia to um, to Basra, and um, we were one of three infantry battalions which deployed at the time. Um, second battalion, the light infantry from Cyprus, and then two further battalions uh, from the United Kingdom. And this was at the so this was um, six months, five months after the after the invasion, and it was just the time the insurgency was building up, particularly in in, uh, in Basra. Um, a lot of activity, a lot of operational activity, and they needed additional troops to um, um, to uh, to counter that activity, the um, insurgency. So uh, we went at very short notice, but again, uh, it was important to take the battalion to Iraq in a in good order, um, well prepared or as well prepared as you can be in two weeks, and um, at the same time you were leaving uh, families in Cyprus again away from their their, their own um, support network in, in the United Kingdom. Um, but again, there is an organization, the Unit Welfare Organization uh, and others who were, who were remaining there uh, who could support that. But yeah, it was it was interesting. It was um, it was challenging. So my command was extended by about um, two and a half, three months. And I handed over command on operations uh, in Iraq. To a very great friend, and it was actually the third role um, that I had handed over command, uh, handed over to him, in our um, in our uh, careers. So it was um, it was tremendous from from that point of view. But how do you feel? I must admit, I felt pretty flat, and I felt flat because you were on a high on operations with the battalion that you'd been commanding for just over two and a half years, um, and it was taken away from you. It was handed over to somebody else. And I remember flying back to uh, flying back to Cyprus, um, and um, you did feel pretty flat. And then I had to move fairly quickly back to the United Kingdom, to England, to uh, to take up my next job. So it all happened fairly quickly after that, and you were into the next cycle. Um, your command was complete. You had great, great memories. Um, but it was time to move on to the next thing. So I take you back, Peter. You talked about when you first joined the army and your first platoon sergeant. What advice would you be giving to that person um, at the end of your command and possibly to anybody that's thinking of joining the armed forces in any way? My advice would be do it. Do it and do it with an open mind, do it with open arms, seize every opportunity that that you can because the opportunities are uh, almost endless and every single one of them will have uh, have a benefit. Um, And... um, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think that that's really kind of never, nobody's, uh, I've never really thought about that. But uh, I think giving uh, that 18-year-old Peter Davis um, a piece of advice is to just follow your heart, do it, uh, and seize the opportunities along the way. Peter Davis, CBE, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for joining us on Conflict Chronicles. You can stay in touch with us by joining us on Facebook, and subscribing to this show from wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a story to be told, or you know of a story that should be told, please contact us through our website at the My Story page, conflictchronicles.com.